Welcome to a special edition of the Kogo Pod. I'm Daniel Lazar. How special? Uh, I am joined by a handful of comparative government and politics students, all of whom are special to me, most of whom are just a couple of bad decisions away from graduating, <laughs> others of whom I've taught since they were wee ninth graders. And we're, we're here to reflect. We're here to reflect on what I humbly believe to be a meaningful experience, taking this class together, sharing this space. We're here to reflect on the the content of this course and our experiences with it. We're here to reflect on our approaches to teaching and learning this course. It's a reflection and I couldn't imagine a better group of people to reflect with. So it is indeed a special episode. We should jump right into it. I had asked you all in advance of this conversation to to do some reflection. And in particular, I asked you to reflect on what you deem to be the most valuable lessons that you learned about governance and about politics in this class. And so I want to turn it over to you to, to share those reflections in no particular order, of course. What were the most valuable lessons you learned in this class? Uh, One lesson that I thought was really important to learn was about the nature of authoritarianism. We talked a lot about democracy in the previous years of our education, but never really about the benefits that authoritarianism can bring, the stability that it can bring in certain countries. And we can see that in countries like Russia, China, and Iran. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I have to say, I didn't plan to interject so much, but I do have to ask, with this rather sensitive topic... What exactly did you learn about authoritarianism? I, for one, tend to think that authoritarian regimes are much less stable than outside observers might think. I think there's a lot of illusions about stable authoritarian regimes. I think that for most people who live in authoritarian regimes, their lives feel terribly unstable, oftentimes out of control, because it's not in their control at all. So you learn something about authoritarian regimes that somehow rubs against what you had learned at this school, which rather fetishizes democracy. Yeah, I I firmly stand by my previous opinions of that democracy is significantly better than authoritarianism in pretty much every regard. I would never plead for an authoritarian regime. Right. Maybe stable is the wrong word. The order, the, the type of consistency that you can find within authoritarianism legislation can be passed more easily but this type of like well consistency efficiency maybe you know thank you carmen like that is kind of what i learned i always had this simply black view of authoritarianism which i basically think i still stand by (laughs) yeah yeah. but it's this it's maybe like a bit of a very dark gray like there are these kinds of things and it's Maybe the better way of phrasing it is this is why authoritarian regimes can, in a way, persist. Because if everybody were truly against an authoritarian regime, then they'd be easier to overthrow. Yeah. Okay. So there are some lessons, some complicated lessons about authoritarianism that you picked up along the way. And also, I just learned a lot more about what an authoritarian regime is, the difference between authoritarian and totalitarian regimes, the real, like, nitty gritty of what a democracy is, the 
at what point is something like all of these things the nature of all regimes as well kind of on a broader point and that authoritarian regimes are much more complicated yes yeah no i would definitely agree with that yeah, yeah. there's levels yes yeah and you also had some lessons you you wanted to share uh yeah so one of the uh lessons that i felt was quite important and something that was um a familiar concept to us in you know the Western world with democracy, but something that I feel like we tie too much to democracy, which is legitimacy. Just sort of talking about um, how countries and regimes within those countries gain legitimacy, and uh, what legitimacy means in itself. You know, me growing up in the states and a democracy where it's constantly taught to you that elections and having a fair and free democracy is what gives us our legitimacy. It's hard to understand how an authoritarian regime could pick up on those same qualities from their people, like, you know, respect to the regime's right to rule. And, you know, regimes of all types pick up on legitimacy, whether or not it be through some type of blood claim or religious right or ideology-based right or things like fair and free elections, or even how authoritarian regimes use democratic means like elections, or at least the veil of such things, to try and gain some level of legitimacy, like Russia with their not-so-free elections and whatnot. Um, and just sort of seeing how places that aren't where I'm from, what I'm used to, uh, collect legitimacy from their people. Or you can talk about Iran with uh, sort of the religious right, and um, you know people believe in the regime because it uh, focuses on the religion that they focus on. Or at least in part, right? Like there is this serious question about the degree to which Iran could maintain its legitimacy without the democratic elements mm -hmm. to further, further foster that, right? Yeah. Especially as um, uh, Iran becomes so much more educated. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. We'll open up the floor. Other valuable lessons you learned from taking this class? Okay, I think a lesson that I learned from this class, um, which has proven to be a bit alarming to an extent, is that the government is held responsible by the people inside it. And <laughs> those people are just people, like they're not very different from us. And we talked about the social contract in the beginning of the year, which is like our responsibility to like maintain government and the fact is that what's on paper isn't strong unless the people in government believe in it. And so when we were talking about like how Russia's on paper constitution is not undemocratic in any way, but um, things like term limits have just gone out the window because, you know, the people in government haven't held those in power responsible. And so the lesson for me was that, you know, it's really our job even as like citizens or subjects of the government to maintain like rule of law and um, hold each other responsible because that power isn't really worth anything if it's just on paper. Like it's really the politician's job. Um, and I found that very interesting because I always thought it was some sort of like higher up magical power who always did the right thing. And it's not that the rules don't really matter unless you follow them and it's easy to break them. So, yeah. And tempting to break them. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, I definitely also learned the same lesson, and I wanted to add that democracies are very fragile, and that kind of plays into that. Even if you have a state like Russia that has a very democratic constitution, or countries like Nigeria and Mexico that have adopted a lot from the U.S. Constitution, which without a doubt can still be considered a liberal democracy, we see that neither of these countries can truly be considered a liberal democracy. And 
even if you are a democracy, it can fall apart and it can fail at any point if these things happen that you were discussing or like corruption in Nigeria. Especially nowadays with, you know, the, you know, the, the threat of the collapse of democracies in the Western world, it's, it's not by revolution anymore, it's by evolution. It is by the slow uh, legal process of, you know, taking apart the norms of democracy. Uh, one of the things uh, that sort of going back to the, uh, their two points was um, the sort of unwritten rules that democracies follow. In the UK, they don't have a constitution, they have precedent. They have years and years of years of norm, democratic norm. And uh, when these things get changed, um, either you know, outside of legislation, uh, just like these norms change when you know, a bad actor comes in and disrupts the norm, or when you have uh, you know, slow legislative changes by, you know, again, potentially a bad actor, that, that's how democracies fall apart nowadays, not by this quick revolution type thing. Right. And of course, it's not just because the United Kingdom has a so-called unwritten constitution, right? Mm. Even constitutional democracies, because of violations of unwritten rules, right? The breaking of the soft guardrails. It's a slow burn, right? Making it extra dangerous. I'm really glad that you learned that deeply valuable lesson. Keeping the floor open. Valuable lessons you learned. Um, This class uh, showed me how important um, civil society was for a country to thrive um, because of uh, how divisive politics can be. Um, The or the volunteer work of of the people uh, and kind of coming together. um. Well, and it's really easy in a way to destroy civil society and it's really hard to build it, right? It's this sacred or nearly sacred space, right? That's so easy for authoritarian regimes to undermine and so hard for well-intentioned volunteers to develop, right? It takes a couple of draconian laws to shove it underground and it takes years of commitment and connection making in order to make it thrive and democracies fundamentally depend on it, right? And um, something kind of building onto that is that in Nigeria, what stood, stood out to me um, was the civil society groups that they have there tend to be very selective with um, who they intend to know, target with their programs, whether whether it's a it's an Igbo or a Yoruba or a Muslim and a Christian. For this civil society to really kind of thrive as it does in the UK, it has it cannot be selective to who their services are intended for or anything like you have to help everyone in order for everyone to like thrive together. Uh, a lot of the civil society in the countries depend on the younger generations and what I found really interesting, what I um, want to see progress in these countries and I'm interested how they will progress is how these younger generations will um, change the countries and necessarily in maybe their policies or what they want and maybe become more democratic, especially in the countries that aren't democratic right now. And I I think there's a lot of power that relies on these younger generations. And they also seem to want change a lot more than, and they seem to get it way faster than generations before have. In fact, that seems to be a constant among all six of the countries we've studied, right? young people 
are sick and tired of politics as usual. In many cases, they're willing to up the ante. They're the future, they know it. And they see the generations that ruling them being not only out of touch, but out of their minds in some cases. I wish actually that I had devoted more time this year to thinking seriously with you about the critically important role that young people play in defining politics in the countries that we studied. I feel like if I did a better job of really taking a deeper dive in, into that, there might've been a serious payload there for you. So I would just ask you as you sort of move forward in your lives and continue to think about politics in a serious way that you seriously think about what you can do, indeed what you must do as young people in order to change the political dialogue towards something that's more commensurate with your values and your ideals. One other thing that I feel is very important going over and through the course concepts and just sort of something that you learn the long way and you can see consistently pop up is the idea that economics and sort of the resources at hand for government plays a huge role in how governments operate. One of the main course concepts that I feel is very important is the resource curse. Um, and basically it's just the idea that if a government has uh, access to a resource um, that uh, in theory it could be used to you know, promote and help the regime change policy in a way that helps the country. But in practice, what often happens is, is especially when people stop paying into the government with things like taxes, the government becomes negligent of what the people want. And since they can operate on their own and without having to respond to the people's needs and wants, um, they uh, take policy into their own hands. And often the people's needs are neglected. We can see this in Nigeria and other OPEC countries like Iran, where uh, these oil, oil renters, we can see that they... Um, use this money to fund their government in a way where they don't have to rely on the people, uh, which results in negligence in terms of helping the people get what they want. And it's, uh, it's something that's at play, something very important. It shapes the way that these governments work, shapes the way that they can work reasonably, um, and is something to take very great note of. Yeah, I mean, basically on the same note, I feel like I learned a lot about, like, economics in this class in a way and obviously with a very politically focused like view but this idea of this is a bit of a cynical lesson but countries being very very rich like Nigeria but still so much of the population being so so poor and this kind of like these politicians being so corrupt that so much money is really disappearing into like private hands, um, even though the country has so much money and so much wealth. A very cynical lesson, but... Well, what are we supposed to learn about that, given this case study of Nigeria? Like, what is the fundamental lesson that we should probably walk away with vis-a-vis our studies of Nigeria and the impact of corruption resulting in extraordinary and horrendous poverty. I would say that one of the things that that Nigeria shows is that the government needs someone to hold them accountable. The INEC, to protect um, their elections in in the the last election of uh, 2023 and this year, um, it was a a successful one. While they needed to (laughs) take some extra steps, um, they did it right. 
And this just kind of shows how an external or a, like a third party holding the government accountable and making sure that things kind of run or the way they should instead of um, the way uh, that the politicians kind of want it to um, yields a, a better result. I, I totally support that, and I appreciate the sentiment behind that response, Cade. I also wouldn't want you walking out of this class without considering the very real problem that Nigerian people are, are no different from anyone in this room, their motivations, their hopes, their dreams are, are no different from ours. The circumstances of Nigeria as, as a post-colonial state that's careened from military to civilian governments and back again a few times, their geographical location and on and on. There's just this conflation of variables that lead to, as you put it, Noah, a, a country that has all of this opportunity, all of this natural wealth, immense resources, fundamentally squandered by corrupt people. Their democracy, their government has gotten hijacked. And Nigerians know this. They're keenly aware of that. And that could happen to any democracy. No democracy, no regime is immune to the corruption that drives so many human endeavors. And I would want you to walk away from this class with that understanding. I would use the United Kingdom as an example to prove this point with Brexit, the amount of lies that I think could basically deemed a form of corruption that we saw in the manipulation of people to vote in favor of Brexit, the advertisements on buses and all of that. I mean, the United Kingdom is still and remains a liberal democracy, but we can still see the people were very influenced by this type of corruption that happened. And then we see Brexit happen. And now the United Kingdom is facing the consequences of this. And it's difficult. Many people can now see that it was a mistake. I mean, YouGov polls show that if Brexit were to be voted on again now, it probably would not pass. Yeah. Yeah. Politicians lie. They, they lie for their own benefit. We just, we expect institutions to check the lies of politicians and in our so-called post-truth era that's exceedingly difficult to do yeah go ahead so one lesson that i think is important to take from the nigeria stuff is that nigerians because of the poverty and the sort of coalition of factors are incredibly uneducated in the majority. Um, you know, most live out in incredibly rural areas, are either parochials or subjects, pay very little attention to politics. Not that there isn't thriving freedom of press in Nigeria, but most people just don't have access to the technology or ability to either develop reasonable thoughts on politics or convey those thoughts. And something that I think is an incredibly important lesson to take from all of this is that if you want, especially a thriving democracy, the best course of action is to invest in your people, invest in education. An educated person and educated peoples are the people who are going to be able to 
both take reasonable stances and convey reasonable stances uh, in a way that allows for reasonable discourse. Uh, and I feel like that's something that a large majority of Nigeria, Nigerians lack. So two things just by way of response. Uh, the first of which, just as an asterisk, you know, Nigeria does have one of the better education systems in Africa. There are a lot of very highly educated Nigerians, many of whom leave Nigeria and they're coming to Berlin and they're coming to New York and they're coming to London and they're coming anywhere that they can have better opportunities. Um, but nevertheless, there are a lot of highly educated people, well-educated, smart people in Nigeria. So I just want to like have that on this record. Yeah. Right. So we have a whole bunch of educated Nigerians, they know the score. They see it with their own eyes. They read and they understand. So I don't think that goes that far into explaining the problem. The problem is the intersection, perhaps, of education and poverty, right? I see. You know what I'm talking about. Go ahead. Okay, so I believe that not only do you have to invest into the education, but you also have to invest in the poverty and being able to maintain these people because not only is like the education important, but like people who cannot maintain themselves and are need to work and need to be able to put food on the table, first comes work and then education. It's not the other way around. And I believe that education isn't the sole thing that the government should work on on bringing up, especially in Nigeria, Mexico, like those poor countries where poverty is just at its highest. And you see it anywhere, really, like how many families are like, well, I know you can get this education. I know you can do this. I know you can do that. You can read and all that. But we need to put food on the table first. We need to work. We need to get that money to be able to even have you buy your books, buy your school bag, buy your uniform, all those things. Because it's not just that easy to go to school and learn. Like, there's multiple things accounted for before getting that education. So I think poverty should be uh, reduced and more, more focused on that and then education. Yeah, I, I know we've talked about this, but I do feel it's a valuable lesson to learn about empathy and what you're talking about. Poor people, because of the circumstances of poverty, and this is true about poor people in Iran, Nigeria, Mexico, China, Russia, it doesn't matter. They make decisions with limited options that might not be consistent with your values. The notion of selling one's vote or the notion of falling prey to or choosing to fall prey to the most charismatic candidate. There's some sort of lesson I would want you to learn about the implications of extreme poverty on governance. And we see it in Nigeria more than any other country in this class. We also see it in Mexico. If we looked more closely, we'd see it in Iran. I think it's hard for us in a way, especially those of us who have grown up in Germany where there's a total dearth of charisma in politics, right? <laughs> like most of you sort of came of age and Angela Merkel's Germany and there's just like 
just no charisma whatsoever, really. One of her great assets. I think for that reason, it's unimaginable to many of you to feel tempted towards populism and charismatic authority. But anyway, that's my own sort of valuable lesson, my own reflection. I really want to turn it over to you. And one thing I want to turn over to you is this question I'm really curious about. Like, Which country that we studied were you most interested in? Which countries, conversely, were, were you least interested in? Super curious. Yeah. Um, for this one, I'm going to have to go with China as the most interesting um, for me. I think it was because China is just such like a unique and um, a complicated uh, country. It was all so new to me, and I was I was quite familiar with with a decent amount of of the history of China, just like from being in in your history classes. Um, but really learning about um, the politics of China and how things work, how the CCP governs, and and um, how all of it, like the special economic zones, and they, there's just there's just so many like layers to the economy and to society there um, that that really intrigued me. And then um, for my least favorite, I went with the UK. The UK didn't appeal to me too much, um, res- respectfully, of course. Um, <laughs> I'm not British. I didn't choose the country, so no offense taken. Um, but um, one thing I did like uh, that I, that was. I don't know what I just wanted to say it was the the House of Lords debate. Um, I thought that was that was a very interesting kind of uh, question to to pose about um, the UK. So, yeah. Just out of curiosity, before we roll on here, who here thinks that China is the most interesting country we study? A couple of you. Who here thinks China is the least interesting? One of you. Two of you. That's bananas. I don't know how you could be least interested. <laughs> I w- who here had the UK as their least interesting? About half of you, because it's just so familiar, right? Okay. You want to explain why China somehow is the least interesting. Okay, no, I'm, I'm, I'm all about the justification. I mean, you're wrong, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so I was least interested in China just because I found it so complicated. Like this, I found it difficult to focus on these really interesting facets that China has, like which I do find very interesting. But for me, it was just very difficult to really understand the structures and functions, to really understand the special economic zones, to really understand this really complicated country. And because it's we have six countries in one year, which is a lot, I wasn't really able to make that work for me. And I was I wrote down here, I was really disappointed in that as well because I see these really interesting things and China is a really important country in the world today and I really wish I was able to understand it better. But it just, it was just almost unengaging for me because it was so complicated and I wasn't able to make it work. I mean, you got a lifetime, right? And hopefully what this class does is it plants the seeds and gives you some context so that if you ever want to go through and fill in that content, you, you can As a matter of fact, I would hazard to gamble that knowing you, you probably will at some point, probably not before graduation. (laughs) The most interesting case study and why, there I pronounced the WH for you, and why? Well, to kind of counteract what Kate said, I couldn't decide between Mexico or Britain. Um, I don't know. Part of me is that 
I, I'm very much an optimist and I really like learning about when things work. And so for me, watching Mexico's transformation from PRI rule to a competitive multi, multi-party system was fascinating. And I think it really made it, it, it stood out to me um, more than anything in this class was that it is possible. I'm not, I, not perfect by any means. And there's still so many issues in Mexico, but I think the fact that they made the shift without, you know, a revolution is incredible to me. And Britain was interesting to me because I think that it's interesting to see a system that's not afraid of the nitty gritty of politics and really takes time to debate um, and use, you know, tradition and norm to be incredibly functional. And I think that those things that the British government doesn't shy away from are undervalued in other countries and their potential to change politics. Um, So that's why those two countries were most interesting to me. The country that I was most interested in was Iran, uh, for many reasons, actually. Right. How is it not? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not just like it's per- the Persian history there. It's just so, it's just, it's ancient and it's beautiful and that, that they just, they have so much culture and history there. How the country functions is just so interesting because of their history. And Islam is one of the most growing, I think, growing religions today and how Ron's regime is is followed through. I think it's either will be emulated or it will be destroyed. And I think that's something really interesting of how just Islam is just going to grow and with that country and how it's governed. And Are you predicting a rise of Islamic theocracies in the world? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I I, I can I can I don't see necessarily I'm not 100, but I can see that how in a way that can happen. Yeah. Because, I mean, it's growing everywhere. It's not just in the Middle East. It's growing all around the world. Islam is growing. Yeah. I, I, gosh, I hope that theocracies aren't on the rise. Like, it's hard enough for me to swallow the slow burn death of democracy, but the rise of theocracy in its place. Oh, Stella, do we have to? <laughs> I, I just I, I just a lot in the Middle East. It's just, it, it's... It's possible. Possible. Yeah. I totally agree. I think Iran is super, super interesting. I think Nigeria also provides a lot of value in this course, simply because it's also something like that I can't, like Iran as well, but also like Nigeria it isn't a part of the world that we learn about ever. And I think this is a really important part of this course. We learn about countries that aren't part of Western society. And this is the first time that I'm engaging with that. I think it's really disappointing that my history course has been that focused up until 12th grade. Um, but yeah, so that's why I thought Nigeria, from this like underdeveloped aspect, this 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 world that I cannot relate to at all, that I was able to be brought into that at least a little bit um, and try to learn about it, not only through the perspective of the people, but also from a higher level from the government and what exactly that entails. I agree with both of you. Iran, Nigeria, both totally mind bending, takes you out of your comfort zone, and I think we need more of that in our education, in our lives. And it makes me wonder like what else you wish you would have learned more about in this class. Go ahead. Can I quickly add to the most interesting kind of section? So everyone was talking about how like they, um, like they've never learned about it, learned about any of the countries and all that. I was most interested in Mexico because of my background and just like the talk that's been given around the family and stuff. Like when we're gathering with family friends or just family in general, like I think this class kind of helped me have the basics of everything, the base of 
being able to not just contribute but understand what's happening now um, and stuff. So I think that's why I was more interested in Mexico because I used to be that person that would just sit back and like, like just hear the talks that the the, the older people would have in the table and just just kind of like zone out and stuff. But now I've been able to not like contribute because I feel like I'm not there yet, but at least understand what they're saying and take account and then do more research on my own and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I appreciate your humility in these family <laughs> conversations. And I also have to say I'm honored to have been, you know, maybe a small part of the process of sharing some perspective and some history about Mexico where your family's from and so it was cool to have that with you i found myself i should confess um trying not to look at you too much when we were talking about mexico you know when it would come up when you're just making comparisons or that allude to it or of course in our unit about mexico and in my heart i felt like i was talking to you it mattered a lot to me that you were part of that conversation um and I'm glad it has some value to you as well. So going back again, I was going to ask you about things that you would have liked to have learned more about. Of course, the answer is Mexico, more Mexico. I'd like to learn more about Mexico to some degree. That's why you took this class. But other things that you all wish you would have learned more about. I would have really loved to learn more in depth about the history of these countries. I think it would have provided a lot of value to me personally. I think this is a very personal thing to understanding the current events and the political structures and functions even, I think. In part, it's simply a deep interest that I think I would have. We only have a year. I don't think it's particularly realistic that that is an option. I think this course did a very good job, and you did a very good job of providing us with a very quick, very good overview of the history. Oftentimes, I just found it a little lacking for me because I was unable to like, really understand it and then really use it in debates. Like, I, in a way, I understood it, and that's where it was kind of, like I say, lacking. I couldn't really use it again. Um, so I might have known the information, but I didn't know the dates. I didn't know the exact people. I didn't know the exact timeline. Those things would have, I would have loved to learn also just from like an intellectual standpoint. Yeah, no, that's I like I, I agree with you. Like the history of these countries is is super important. And this this could also be maybe a little bit more of a lesson, um, but something that I like I learned while I was studying for this class is that. Like for for me personally, I put a little too much, too much into the history, and less into these concepts of, of um, legitimacy and where like the power lies in the democracy and like, like this like the the course concepts right. So um, something that I, I wish I would have learned a little more was and something that you talked about in your podcast about writing writing the textbook. Which I found, which I found super, uh, super interesting, and definitely think that it would be successful is that kind of merging the concepts with the countries, um, and just kind of having them have like overlap throughout the year instead of just doing the history of the countries and like that. The history is compelling because it's a narrative. The stories matter, and you know, I would love to dive further in, into the history. Again, hopefully what this course gives you is is just like a little schnippa, right? Like a little a little taste. And then you can you can dive further in in your long, beautiful lives, um, to filling in the gaps in that historical knowledge. What do you wish you would have learned more about? 
Um, I was really interested in sort of the individual ideologies in each country and sort of defining what left and right meant in every country because it was very different from what I was familiar to. Um, And I thought, oh, Britain's a Western country. I kind of understand Britain and beginning with Britain, my notion of what it means to be conservative or liberal, um, et cetera, got turned on its head. And I think I would really like to have looked at that with, a, a lot of the countries, um, and even I was—that was kind of what my presentation on Iran was about. But I, I just struggled with that a little bit, and so I think I would like to look into more sort of political axes in all of the countries. Um, one thing that I want to want to learn more about is the cleavages. Um, just like uh, Carmen was saying, how like knowing what left and right is in each country, I think also comes from the cleavages as well and how other people think and what they see. And I think that's what kind of was, what is missing in the curriculum of like learning, because I think if we know more about what the people see and how it's divided up and how uh, everyone sees every certain, not everyone, but like the certain amount of people see everything, I think it would help understanding more of the left and right and what, uh, decisions are being taken and why and things like that. Right. So when we're looking at like this intersection of culture and history and politics, yeah. there are probably people in this room more interested in culture and history than politics, right? Exactly. Again, partly having to do with our almost innate predilection towards stories and narratives. And um, I totally feel that I have to... Uh, kind of limit myself when teaching this class to how much culture and history I talk about so that we can talk about governance and politics, it being in the title of the course, as it were. Yeah, I really would also like to learn more about that, specifically from the point of view of people in that country. Learning about cleavages, I think, is very important also in our society, hearing from both sides, like hearing from liberals and conservatives, all of that, and really directly from citizens of the AP6 countries like whether it be through a video or whatever, hearing that I've always found very valuable. We watched some videos about Nigeria in a similar fashion and I found those very, very helpful and it really brought me into the world a little bit more. One more thing I feel like real quick to note about things we should have learned or things that uh, we should maybe strive to continue to learn about these countries is just sort of current events. You know, we talk about the history, but also especially when developing a current understanding about these countries, uh, we should really look at the current events. Like with Russia, we were able to talk about Chechnya and all this other stuff, but um, it's still a bit too soon to talk about the Ukraine war for example. Um, but you know, these yeah. are, uh, it, 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 it's something that's currently developing. And yeah. so, uh, maybe, maybe something I would have wished a little bit more for was just sort of a uh, deeper dive into more current subjects. Can I ask you a question? So I, um, you've probably noticed make very little effort to make this a current events class. Like my MO is to give you context and you can scroll through your phones any day to get contemporary content. There are teachers who really focus on current events. They do current events Friday. They're constantly posting on online chat forums for their classes about current events. I read every day to keep up with the current events of these countries. I share very little of what I read with you. Here's my precise question. Do you think moving forward, when I teach this class, I should 
have a WhatsApp group or post everything to Google Classroom or email you all these articles. For on one hand, I don't want to burden you. On another hand, I feel like on some level you should be in charge of pursuing your own interest in your own education. But on this third hand, because I'm three-handed in this case, I do have the compulsion when I'm reading about something that happened in China or Russia or whatever to send it to you all. I have that compulsion literally every day. But I also try to be respectful of your time and your other classes. So let's do a quick vote, and then I'll, I'll hear what you have to say. By show of hand, who believes that future classes of mine should have some sort of forum where I or anyone else in the class can post current events articles. Who thinks that's a good idea? That's all of you. Okay, so my my effort to be empathic and not overburden you with my reading list is for naught. Very important lesson about empathy. I'm done with it. Yeah, go ahead. Say something, but I want to move on. Yeah, I think it's good for the course to not bring it into the classroom. Uh, it's an AP course. We want to focus on the AP exam. The AP exam is not about current events. I often find it difficult to know exactly where, what reliable source. I think a lot of people our age find that difficult and often go down the wrong wormhole. And that's why I think it would be very beneficial to a lot of us to just have the sources right there. If we want to learn about it, we can. I will say also, we do we did have a WhatsApp group with our students and during the Nigerian election, we were sending articles and stuff. And I think talking even in brief, although that was good timing for us, I know there's not an election we can always talk about, but when that was happening, um, I think even outside of class, we were having really good discussions about it. Um, so yeah, I agree with Noah outside of class. It was, it is a, I think it's very valuable. Yeah. You just reminded me why I don't have a WhatsApp group with my students because in years past when I had one I would learn that they had their own separate whatsapp group that I wasn't invited to and I took it really personally and I just thought <laughs> I just remembered that that was a thing we invited you to ours I believe I I believe not no we did I'm fair I'll add you darn it <laughs> did you I have, I, I have we did no, didn't we I think I at one no point we were discussing it in class and I think we I did. don't think you did but um, but I'm wrong a lot. I'm wrong a lot. I could be wrong again. It wouldn't surprise anyone. Okay, I'm very sorry. It's okay. We could still be besties. So perhaps at this point, you know, in thinking about students who are, are soon to take this class or who are just beginning to take this class, maybe we can speak to them a little bit. I have a couple questions around that. And this is you doing your due diligence, your community service, helping out the, the young guns. Give them a little heads up. Like, what's a, a concept or an idea in this class that you really struggled to grasp? And if you will, like, did you come around to it and end up grasping it, or is it still sort of hanging out there? Well, one of the concepts that were was difficult for me to grasp was peaceful transfers of power, because many times uh, in history we've seen uh, transfers of power happen through a revolution, which has always been aggressive and violent. Um, and it not being as quite shocking and was just, it, I mean, obviously I knew it happens and that's something that occurs often, but especially in Mexico, uh, there, there was a peaceful transfer of power. They're not necessarily peaceful in that, like nothing, that there's no, like, obviously there's no violence. It's, it's still a very hard and 
long process. It's not easy in any way. Um, and I think there's obviously still a lot of um, backlash, even if it's quote unquote peaceful. Right. So if I'm hearing you right, you're not just talking about peaceful transfers of power, but you're talking about like peaceful regime changes, right? The PRI giving up rule after 71 years. We're talking about, you know, the institution of the Fourth Republic and the military government in Nigeria abdicating in 1999. We're talking about the Soviet Union crumbling and, you know, the the giving over of power to a putatively civilian government. It, I'm totally with you. It's really hard to wrap one's head around how that happens. And I guess, you know, you just try to look at case study after case study, you think comparatively, but it's a, it's a heavy load to carry, isn't it? What are other concepts that you all found difficult to wrap your heads around? Um, it's, it's pretty simple, but I don't know if, I don't think I'm the only one that struggled with understanding the differences between legitimacy and sovereignty. Um, at first I was like, both are big words and it just means the government's in charge. Um, but that's <laughs> not the case necessarily. And it was embarrassing because it was maybe two thirds of the way through the year when I was like, I, I just have to ask what the difference is and should I, should I explain the difference? I don't know. Yeah, I just, let's, let's, see oh, let's see if I made it through. I'm still a little bit unclear, but if I understand it correctly, legitimacy is drawn from the people's belief in the government's right to rule and sovereignty is the government's power over where it rules. Am I correct in that? We'll let that, <laughs> we'll let that stand for now. Yay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but just making sure that there's two terms that I thought were very similar. Um, and so, yeah, learn the vocabulary in the beginning. Very important. Uh, one of the uh, concepts that was um, tricky for me to grasp was uh, the role of religion in Iran um, because it's both divisive and unifying. Uh, it's 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 a theocratic regime, right? And religion is kind of the is the base of everything. Um, and there's no separation between uh, church and state, um, mosque and state. Um, uh, but um, the fact that like there are so many different kind of levels of people who practice Islam. And with this, with Iran having such a large portion of the population being under 15, uh, and there's, there's, yeah, like I said, there's such a growing young population, and it, the values of religion are are changing. So while it holds together this theocracy, it divides the people up even more. So yeah, I, that was a little trick for me to grasp. Yeah. So party and electoral systems, like structures and functions, in certain countries where we also had quizzes on them, I think it is really important to put a lot of effort into that. I really underestimated how difficult it would be. I tend to be a logical thinker and a logical person, so I thought that wouldn't be a particularly big issue for me. But if you don't go over it, if you don't have the right resources, if you don't understand how you learn, then it becomes very difficult to understand this very complicated dynamic system in countries like China. Um, where it's just all over the place and a country that you've never really dealt with, a country where it's so many new systems, like we're familiar with systems like the US, so countries like Mexico and Nigeria tend to be easier for us to understand, but then countries like China where the systems are just nothing we've ever been faced with before, like it's just, I found it very difficult and I really underestimated how much trouble I would have with that. Uh, but I think it's also really important to not underestimate your own ability of what you can learn in this class, because especially for me at the beginning of this year, I 
was scared to just participate in this class, even though we're not a lot of people, but maybe that was more intimidating than that. Um, and it took me a while to be able to just say and things I've learned or even voice and discussions or something because I was just intimidated by the level of knowledge other people had in this class. But at some point, you all are learning the same thing and you all learn, you all learn the same information. So what they are learning, what they are grasping, you can too. And it's just the level of effort you put into what you want to learn. Yes, and I think we often overestimate how much other people think. I had a very similar feeling, like being not afraid to make mistakes or say something that is stupid. Like, let's not pretend we don't say stupid things. Like, yes, there are stupid questions, and yes, we say stupid things, and that's okay. It's like it happens. It happens to the best of us. It happens to the smartest of us. And, yeah. I totally agree. I think coming in in this class with a sense of humility, but with like a real drive to learn is probably what matters most. I do believe that most students walk into this class young and woefully ignorant about governance in Iran (laughs) and in Mexico and in China. And even kids who are like big MUN nerds or they think a lot about politics, I don't even know that that gives them so much of an advantage. In a way, it might be a disadvantage because they have to unlearn a whole lot. And so um, it's almost like um, classical musicians who show up at jazz lessons. They face a certain disadvantage, even if they have the dexterity and the confidence. If they're trying to jam jazz, they face real mental obstacles. Um, I don't know how far that analogy goes or how useful it is, but I really appreciate what you had to say about that. Perhaps just in closing here, and again, thinking about future students of this class, I'd like to kind of just go around the table and have each of you offer one piece of advice to students who are just beginning to embark upon this class. Can I start with you and we'll just go that way? Um, Okay, well, for me... I know that notes that I take are the most valuable resource I have, and this is not the case for everyone in this class. Not everyone took notes, but I would say that, um, looking at one specific person, (laughs) uh, yes, um, I will say, though, the lectures are literally just like, like he's telling you the stuff. And so I think during those is when you have to be the most attentive. And even if you receive lecture notes, um, I was taking my own lecture notes during that time because you're not going to get what you need specifically for you from the lecture notes. So even if you're annotating the ones he gives you, I think unless you're trying to engage in the lecture, um, I wasn't going to grasp any of it unless it was written down by myself. Um, So making your own notes and then in those notes, adding what you would compare to the other countries when you have the means to do so. Um, so even on the lecture notes, if something reminds you of another country, like, oh, I've definitely seen this in Iran, writing that down in the moment is really important. Um, one advice that I would give would be just if you're taking the class because you're required to or because um, you 
you might find it interesting is just coming in with an open mind I think it will just help learn every like learn and understand things um that was something that I I kind of tried to um come into this class because I was required to take the class and I ended up liking it I found I learned many um new things that I didn't know and I think if you just come into class with an open mind with um and ready just to learn things that maybe will help you in life, maybe it won't, but just just keeping in mind that it could be a fun class, it would be interesting to learn things and stuff, so yeah. Uh, really learn the course concepts and like <laughs> actually understand them at the beginning of the year, because it will benefit you later on in the year. Yeah, so um, one thing that I'll make note of sort of going off of what Lucia said is sort of doubling down on the idea of being open-minded, but not just being open-minded, but um, I would I would be open-minded, but I'd also be skeptical of everything you read and you see. Um, with, with with like obviously all of this, I mean you need you need you to. You did a good job of not looking at me when you said it. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, there's a there's a curriculum there's there's a curriculum to be learned. There's things to be learned, but um, especially when we're talking about again like going over current events or even past events, looking at you know. At, for example, propaganda or looking at you know the history of the country and how things work um, it, it's important to try to put things in context, not you know be open minded look at things, take things in the context, but um, be skeptical always I think this course requires a lot of discussion and debate, really talking about all of the topics and while talking about them using the vocabulary words I think the combination of that was always very helpful I sometimes just talked to myself like in my room about these things and I found that very beneficial we also as a class called off at the time like three times or something to talk about a quiz or test that we had coming up and that was also very helpful because that way you were really talking to another person which tends to be more helpful than talking to yourself like a crazy person <laughs> so cool yeah um, kind of uh, just doubling back to what, what Carmen said about um, the lectures, uh, one thing that helped me as well was uh, the fact that the lectures were all on Spotify on, the, on like this podcast. Um, so, I mean, I could like go back and listen to them. But what's, I think, the most important thing in this class is to learn the vocab words at the start of the year. Yeah. Um, Gosh, I wish I would have said something about that. <laughs> get, get, get 100% on that quiz. Yeah. Like, yeah. Strong, strong foundation makes all the difference in the world. Well, it has been a bona fide pleasure to share this class with you, starting from those foundations in, in August uh, all the way for almost to June now. Um, I have enjoyed every waking moment with you all. It has been a privilege. It's been a pleasure. It's been fun. I've enjoyed it tremendously. Thank you for reflecting with me. For, for other students. Um, it was very kind of you. Thank you so much for everything. And I hope our dear listeners were able to gain a lot from your reflections. All right, I'll see you all soon. Are you blonder? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how we start. That's how the podcast starts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The bloop, the blooper reel of the Kogo Pod. It's just Noah like saying everything he wanted to be taken out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Cool. Here's how it starts. <laughs>